What is your name? That simple question was Jesus' first comment to the man with demons. Consider what a frightening moment it might have been. The man is without clothes. He's dragging chains and shackles around with him. He sleeps in a graveyard. I, I dare say if any of us encountered someone like that in downtown Columbus, naked and, and acting outside of themselves, obviously in, in serious distress, dragging chains and shackles, we would most likely be frightened. We might even turn away and be very careful not to make eye contact. But in my mind's eye, Jesus looks directly at this man looks him in the eye, looks past the frightening situation, doesn't worry about the nakedness or the chains or the fact that he sleeps with the bones of others, and he asks that simple question. What is your name? Legion, he replies. Amy Jill Levine is a very good New Testament scholar. She says that this is a signal from Luke, the author of the gospel we just heard a moment ago, that this man is suffering in distress because of he's most likely suffered under the hands of the Roman army. You see, a legion in the Roman army was about 5,000 to 6,000 men. They had legions spread out around the ancient Near East, around the Mediterranean, the ancient Mediterranean world in order to keep things under control. It was during an era, this story is told from an era that was called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. From about 27 years before Jesus was born to about the year 180, about 200 years, there was a relative peace throughout the ancient Near East. And when I say relative, I mean relative because the way they kept peace was brutal. If you got in their way, they would not hesitate to torment you, to torture you, and if you continued to be a problem, they'd put you on a cross in public and crucify you. That was the way they kept peace. This man, we want to be careful about labeling him. We want to be careful about saying, oh, he must have had this issue or this problem or this concern. What we know is he most likely suffered emotional, mental, spiritual, and even physical pain at the hands of the occupying army. What is your name? You know, that question from Jesus is a gracious one. It's a gentle one. It's a kind one. No labels are given by Jesus. Jesus doesn't say anything to the man about his condition. He looks through all of that and as an act of grace asks him, what's your name? It's another way of asking, who are you? Who are you at the center of, of who you are, really? Bruce Larson wrote the book, What God Wants to Know, and he helpfully points out there that all of us are more than our family, more than our, our job, more than our education, more than our situation in life. He, he wonders, what would happen to you if you suddenly lost your job and lost your family and were transported into a culture and civilization that didn't have the idea of family or job or employment or anything like that, and they came up to you and said, who are you? How would you respond at the very core of who you are? What would you say? How would you describe yourself? You know, part of the issue for, for many of us is the fact that we oftentimes grow up in families that even sometimes intentionally, most of the time unintentionally, project ideals onto us about what they expect us to be and to become. Their own 
personal projections, desires for us to become something other than we truly and really are. This happens to ministers, I can tell you. It happens to ministers a lot. And prisoners project ideas onto us. And the mistake we make, and not just ministers, many of us, the mistake we make when those roles or ideas are projected onto us, we accept them and we try to live within them. And the next thing you know, months or years or decades later, there's anger and frustration and other things that start to, to bubble up and bubble out. And again, ministers are, are we are our own worst enemies that comes, come to this. I've got a group of buddies, pastors that I'm friends with around the country, and we have kind of a running joke about how do you respond if you're on an airplane and your seatmate says, well, tell me what you do. Because if you tell them you're a pastor, well, you know, that could go a whole new direction of, of conversation. And so all of us have agreed that what we're really tempted to do is to say, what do I do? Oh, well, I'm a brain surgeon. Thank you very much. And, and, and the, re the reason we do that is because who knows how to talk to a brain surgeon? No one knows what to say to a brain surgeon. And so you can go back to reading your book and just quietly enjoying whatever, whatever it might be. There was one time that I was real. I wish I had. I wish I had said I'm a brain surgeon. It was a long flight from Atlanta to uh, LAX, to Los Angeles uh, Air International Airport. And it was about an hour into the flight, nice man sitting next to me in the middle, middle seat, I'm on the aisle, and it eventually comes around to that question, well, tell me what you do. Well, took a breath, I'm a pastor. The next thing you know, he wants to talk about the book of Revelation, and he wants to talk about the Antichrist, and he has all these conspiracy theories about who the Antichrist really is, and how the end of the world is going to happen, and what it's going to be like, and he starts telling me all these things, and asking me all kinds of questions, and I'm, I'm gently and, and nicely trying to say, this is terrible theology, and that's not the Bible, and I'm sorry, but you don't know what you're talking about. I've, three hours of this. He just wouldn't, wouldn't relent, just kept going and going and going, talking about, he believed, this is the mid-90s, he really believed that Bill Clinton was the Antichrist. I had to listen to this for three hours. By the time we, time we landed in L.A., I was pretty sure that he was the Antichrist. <laughs> well, one more plain story for you. I was flying on a long flight, similarly, out to Seattle. <clears throat> and there's a man sitting next to me in the middle, middle seat. I'm on the aisle again. He has his Bible open. He has a notepad. He's taking handwritten notes as he's reading through his Bible. Well, I couldn't resist. I said, are you a pastor? He said, no, I'm a brain surgeon. <laughs> That's a true story. That's a true story. A hundred percent true. I couldn't believe it. I said, no, you're not. Are you kidding me? He said, why would you question that? Uh, never mind. It's a long story. We, we got into a conversation. He was about 15 years older than me. This is when I was about 50 years old myself. Looked like he was around retirement age. He said, you know, a couple of years ago, as I was planning to close my practice and move into retirement, I experienced a sense of call to the ministry. So I went to see my pastor and talked talk to him. I met with church leaders, family, close friends, and, and the community of faith together said, yes, we believe you have a call. And so now that I'm fully retired, I'm in a one-year-long uh, course that will allow me to be commissioned in ministry in my church. And right now I'm writing a theology paper. That's why you see me writing notes. Now here's why I really told you this story. This question, what's your name, who are you, is one that we really need to ask throughout our lives. 
Thank God I'm not who I was at 20. I'm not who I was at 35, a young dad with a couple of small kids. I'm not who I was 15 years ago. It's a question we continually ask ourselves. What's my name? And in light of that, who am I? Who are you? Who are you becoming? The more we can answer this question, the the healthier we are spiritually, emotionally, and I would even suggest physically. The more we're able to to wrestle with that and and with ones we love, ones we care about, ones who love us and, and will listen to us and engage with us in that conversation, the better it can be for us and for the relationships we have around us. We, we were at the Pride Parade yesterday in downtown Columbus. Lots of signs, lots of, lots of fun, lots of all that stuff going on. My favorite sign, it was on t-shirts, posters, all, all throughout the parade, three words, you do you. What a lovely sentiment. What a lovely idea. You be you. You become the person God has created you to be. And, that, that's, and that's for whether you're straight or gay. That's not a separation for just those folks. It's for all of us. You be you. You do you. Become the one that God created marvelously and beautifully to be who you are, embrace it, and become that one. The problem, of course, is sometimes even those we love the most don't really know us. Sometimes the ones we need the most to understand us refuse to look us in the eye, refuse to ask us like Jesus did for the man with demons, to be gentle and gracious and ask the question and wait for the answer. Bruce Larson, who I mentioned a moment ago, he tells a story about the time Charlie Chaplin, do you remember Charlie Chaplin? You remember the actor from like 100 years ago? Charlie Chaplin was in Monte Carlo attending a film festival. While he was there, he discovered that there was a Charlie Chaplin look-alike contest being held. And some of his best friends in the industry were the judges for the contest. So he entered the contest. He came in third. (laughs) And you know why? You know why you're hearing this story? Even his best friends didn't see him, didn't see the real person didn't recognize their friend, their buddy, their their pal. How many of us today have people who you dearly, maybe even desperately love who don't even see you or somehow really even know you? How painful is it to be seen and yet not known? This is the great gift that Jesus brings, is the simple ability to push aside the noise and see the real you. After two years of college, I was not doing very well. My first two years, I struggled academically. I was on on academic probation a couple of different times, close to being kicked out of school. Honestly, my self-esteem, my self-image could not have been lower or worse. My family back in San Francisco, I went to a little Bible college up in Oregon. My family back in San Francisco was a gigantic mess. My mom and dad were separated for the first time. Their marriage was falling apart. There were other issues and dynamics at play in our family. I was distracted by all of that and also, by the way, I rarely went to class or studied. It's kind of a bad combo, kind of a bad combo. At the start of my third year, I didn't have enough credits to be a junior, but at the start of my third year, 
I took a class called Extemporaneous Speech with Dr. Lee Lane. Our first assignment was a four or five minute uh, introductory speech to tell the class about who you are. I gave my speech, I thought it went pretty well, and after I was done, Dr. Lane said, thank you, Glenn, I'd like to speak with you after class. Oh, what did I do? I, didn't, I thought, did, I let, did a swear word slip out or something? What, what, what did I do wrong? Class is over, he calls me over to his desk, have, have a chair. I gave you an A. You're my A student. Now go and earn the grade you deserve. Do you see what he did? He's the hero in this story. Do you see what he did? He looked past all the stuff. Some of it my fault, some of it frankly beyond my control. He was able to look past all of that, look me directly in the eye and say, you're my A student. Now go and earn it. He could look past all that mess to see the potential. Maybe one of you is that person. Maybe one of you is one who can find somebody in your life, who can speak to somebody in your life, a friend, a family member, a son, a daughter, a parent, even a grandparent, whoever it might be. Maybe you're the one to push aside the mess and see through, to look him in the eye. Maybe all you need to do is just let them know, I want you to know I love you and I'm your friend and will be there for you forever. But here's the thing, you need to know this. Sometimes that means the status quo gets upset. Sometimes that, that means the way things always are are always going to be. And when that happens, some of those, those very people that we think we love, that we think love us, sometimes they're the ones who get the most upset. Did you hear the story? Did you notice what happened? The man is healed, transformed, renewed. It's, it's kind of cute. The, well, I guess it's cute. It, the, way, the way it happens, the demons are begging Jesus, would you please send us away? Please, please send us away. And well, where do you want to go? Well, send us into the pigs. So this is a lesson in being careful to what you ask for it because you might get it. He sends them into the pigs and they stampede and they fall over the edge of the steep cliff and down into the, into the sea where they drown and die. Sometimes the sea in antiquity was see, seen and understood as the abyss or as the place of the dead, as Hades or hell. The the demons, it was said in antiquity, can't escape hell. They've been sent away. And then the people in the village are upset. The swineherds tell everyone what happens. They come rushing in to find Jesus, and, they, and there's this beautiful line. It's one of my favorite lines in the entire Bible. Not just this story, not just the New Testament, but the entire Bible. They come in, they find Jesus. Jesus is sitting down and seated at his feet, is the man known before as Legion. But now the Bible, it says, Luke says, he is clothed and in his right mind. It's a transformative story. It's a resurrection story. It's a hint of what the resurrection will be for all of us, that we'll finally and fully be transformed in the name of love to be the ones that God has called us and invited us to be for all eternity. It's a resurrection story. And the people, did you hear it? are afraid, the frightened. In, in the Greek that Luke uses, literally it means they 
feared a great fear. Everything's been turned upside down. You see, what's, what had been going on is they had gotten used to the man with demons. They'd gotten used to the man who's always running around without clothes, who's dragging chains and shackles, who sleeps with, with the graves. They'd gotten used to him. In fact, not only that, they learned how to manipulate the situation to get their own power. They learned how to keep the attention on him so they could live their own lives with no one seeing their own issues and the ways they were hurting themselves and ruining themselves. When Jesus comes in and heals, he's not always welcomed because he's taken everything that they knew and turned it upside down. And you've seen that before. I know you have. You see that as long as that, that man with the demons was there, the attention was always, always on him and not on any of the dysfunction that was going on around in the rest of the village. As a pastor, I've seen too many loveless marriages. Too many. Where the partners in, in the relationship focus all of their attention on Bobby and Susie to make sure they've got enough money and enough things to get through school and to get through college and to get on with their own life. And the next thing you know, they're empty nesters and all they've got are each other and there's too much fear to ask the question, who are you? Who are we? Churches can do that too. Sometimes churches manufacture false controversies just so we can avoid asking the deeper question of who are we? Who are we becoming? Where is God calling us to next? To disrupt the status quo, to bring healing and health and wholeness into an unhealthy situation is frightening, worrisome, and overwhelming. But when we can, in our church, in our families, in our neighborhoods, our schools, when we can do that, when we can face ourselves, when we can answer that question openly and honestly, something new can emerge. Did you hear it in the story? The man is so excited by what's happened. He's so enthralled with Jesus. He's ready to follow Jesus. And if you read the Gospel of Luke all the way up to this story, there have been plenty of, of folks along the way who said, I will follow you, I will follow you. And Jesus even invites a few to follow him. But in, the, in this case, he surprisingly says to the man, no, you stay here. And you go about the villages and the cities and the towns and you tell everyone what has happened to you. This, this place was outside of Galilee. It's Gentile territory. The pigs are another sign of that as well. It's Gentile territory. This guy becomes the first evangelist to the Gentiles to share with them what had happened to him. And then there's this beautiful thing, this beautiful word. And with that, the man returned home. His transformation began. His journey home began. When Jesus kindly, graciously, lovingly looked him in the eyes, looked past all of the mess, and asked, What's your name? Who are you? And at the end of the story, he finds himself at home. And home is that place where you are loved and accepted. Home is any place where you are loved and accepted for who you are. I trust, I believe, and I hope that all of us will find our way home.